Welcome to Tisky Sour. We were going to spend an hour talking about Will Smith hitting Chris Rock at the Oscars, but then I had to think about it and I figured that probably barely anyone in the world cares what either I or Barnaby have to say about the incident. So we're going to stick to our bread and butter. Instead of Chris Rock and Will Smith, we're talking Rishi Sunak, the Deem Zahawi, Joe Biden, Laura Koonsberg, issues where, you know, I, I do hope I can have, have something informative to add to the conversation, as you'll already be aware from that intro. I'm joined by Barnaby Rain. Barnaby, welcome back to the show. It's a great pleasure to be here, as always, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. And I shall announce that we now have Barnaby on every Monday um, show covering for Ash until she is back from book leave, which we are super delighted about. I know he always gets amazing feedback in the comments. After what many regard as a disastrous spring statement, Rishi Sunak was today up against the Commons Treasury Committee. This is Angela Eagle taking him to task. I mean, to sum up then, you've made a political choice to plunge 1.3 million people, including half a million children, into absolute poverty. On the figures we have now, that is what you've chosen to do in your spring state. No, what I've, what I've chosen to do is ameliorate, uh, on average, a third of the impact on living standards from forces that are clearly outside of my control, global in nature. We've come up with a package that is progressive in the way it's been designed and, crucially, will not add to the inflationary pressures in a significant way, which would harm the very people that we care about and want to make sure that we do care for. I totally accept you might have preferred to say, well, I would rather not cut taxes on 30 million working people. I, I, don't and, don't and, put words into my mouth. No, no, but you, you said it's choice, right? So there's, don't, and don't as the chair said, so there's a choice that choice. people can make within this, a constraint of how much is a responsible amount to borrow. What I'm trying and to I'm, do, I'm comfortable with the choices that I've made are the right ones for the country. what I'm trying to do is tease out your choices. I don't want to, you to speculate on what mine might have been. Um, the, the issue here is that we've got people on fixed rates of income that are going to suffer very, very badly in the next period, whatever happens in October. For example, a single person caring for their parent whose main source of income is their carer's allowance of £67 a week. Uh, they're not going to be able to um, accommodate a huge, trebled, quadrupled energy bill, are they? You've not helped them. Well, we've announced £9 billion worth of support in February to help oh, people with social energy bills. security benefits well, could, could I just answer by the question? Billion in real terms, a minus 5% real terms cut in welfare and social security benefits doesn't seem the best way of approaching this vicious increase in the cost of living. I'm very mindful of the impact on people in difficult circumstances or on low incomes, which is why I'm, I'm pleased that our policies are helping them. So if you take a single mother, for example, who's working full time on the national living wage with uh, in rented accommodation, you know, that, that mum is going to be £1,600 better off, £1,600 better off as a result of the changes we have made on taxes and national living wage uh, and over, over the last few months and what we've announced last week. So that's putting significant money into the pockets of someone like that, who of course I know needs our support. So in that session, Rishi looked smug as ever, though slightly more jaded than usual. And he was telling outright porkies throughout. That's because Rishi Sunak insisted his spring statement was progressive. And while that is the case, if you take his tax policies alone, a full account shows the opposite to be the case. 
the increase in the national insurance rate makes everyone a little bit poorer, but it has a bigger negative impact on the rich. In the green is the effect of raising the national insurance threshold. That makes everyone a little bit richer, but with the smallest effect on the wealthiest. So far, so progressive. But this is all absolutely dwarfed for the poorest households by the fact that benefits aren't rising in line with inflation. What Rishi Sunak calls a progressive mini-budget is in fact hitting the poorest hardest. As a result of his policies, households with the lowest incomes will be almost 5% worse off. Sunak's favoured example of the single mum working full-time was also misleading. Yes, tax changes might make her better off, but energy price hikes and general inflation means she might not feel much richer. Barnaby, have you been surprised as to how quickly the wheels are coming off Rishi Sunak? It shows the arrogance, I think, of a certain class of British society that it seems to the Tory party that Rishi Sunak, a man worth £200 million, can reasonably be expected to be Chancellor of the Exchequer announcing increased hardship for most people in this country. So I think it's shouldn't be surprising to us that uh, pretty quickly he starts to look out of his depth. Last night, the BBC interviewed a woman who didn't cry as she talked about her freezing cold home, but she did break down when she told the nation about her young son who shivers at night without heating. People are breaking down on national television, and after a decade of stagnant living standards, Rishi Sunak has the cheek to blame and the government has the cheek to blame war in Ukraine for rising energy bills now, while Rishi Sunak's wife made £12 million from a company operating in Russia founded by her billionaire father. That's a pretty stark indication of the kinds of dividing lines of class operating in this country now. People suffer and struggle and are told that they must suffer and struggle more to pay the costs of geopolitical tensions in Eastern Europe, while the Chancellor who lectures them pockets £12 million for his family home from connections to the Russian state. I think that is really well put. They, they even thought it could be acceptable to have this guy worth £200 million. As we said um, on Friday's show, his wife appears to be worth around a billion dollars if you work out what her shares in Infosys are worth. And they thought he would be the guy to communicate to the public, oh yes, there's a cost of living crisis, but we can increase your benefits in line with inflation because that could increase inflation more. Obviously, the other thing that could decrease inflation is if you properly tax the rich, that would take some demand out of the economy, but it would, would take it out from people who can afford to have it taken from them. There's apparently also disquiet within the government at Sunak's spring statement. The Sunday Times report Rishi Sunak is now friendless in cabinet, perhaps a little bit overstated. But they also reveal internal research which has shaken senior aides of a high-level meeting with pollster Michael Brooks. They report Brooks outlined Tory internal polling, which showed that in recent days, the public concern over the cost of living crisis had surged, eclipsing the NHS as the number one issue voters care about. Those present say the speech on household incomes has shot up the polling graph by more than 30 points in six months, faster than any other issue in recent years. Brooks reported that even the pandemic had not prompted the same public reaction. One ministerial aide said, there was a graph showing the number of people for whom it is their number one concern rising from the teens to between 50 and 60%. Another remarked, the cost of living issue is a train about to hit us. The cost of living crisis is indeed a train that's about to hit the Tories, but maybe if Rishi Sunak spoke to more people who were not millionaires, he might have seen it coming a little bit earlier. The Sunday Times also report policy differences are compounded by suspicion among his cabinet colleagues about Sunak's attempts to create a personal brand. Some were delighted when his publicity stunt to illustrate his cut-in-fuel duty backfired. 
Sunak, a millionaire who is married to an heiress, borrowed a Kia car from a member of the public so he could be pictured at the pumps and then presented his can of Coke to the card reader, sparking claims that he did not know how to use contactless payment. But it is interesting, it's now getting a write-up in a Murdoch-owned paper. This is the kind of newspaper, the Sunday Times, that would have been backing Sunak to the hilt. Barnaby, do you think we should read much into Murdoch papers saying something negative about Rishi Sunak? Well, I think they'll be in trouble if they're looking for any individual, and this is often a problem that the right-wing press have in moments of real crisis, if they're looking for any individual who can successfully deliver popularity in a moment of secular crisis, in a moment of rising costs, falling living standards with no solutions. I don't care that much about Rishi Sunak as an individual. He's an empty suit. One banker is as good as any other. He knows who he represents. In the last five years, the big six energy firms have made more than £7 billion in profit. So that's contemporary British capitalism. A natural monopoly is sold off in the name of the free market so that we all go from owners of our energy supply to supplicants. A few people stuff their wallets and the rest of us are ordered to pick up the tab while their mates in government laugh with them all the way to the bank. We pay sky-high energy bills while a few people make profit and their friends are government ministers. Whether it's Rishi Sunak or someone else, that would be the story. And maybe Rupert Murdoch wants someone they uh, think will be more compelling, but it's the same set of policies. And it's not a joke. You know, I've got a friend who works for Uber, who sits in his hat and coat and gloves indoors, shaking with cold and budgets every penny for a few hours of warmth from energy companies who then uh, laugh all the way to the bank. And Rishi Sunak tells him to make sacrifices because Ukraine has been invaded, then goes home to his mansion funded by Russian cash. The whole society is sick. And I don't care much whether it's Rishi Sunak or some other politician. He may have had his moment in the sun, his moment of popularity, doling out some cash in a pandemic. Now it's back to their real values, punishing the poor to ensure that their rich friends make £7 billion of profit. Let's go to our next story. The only way to avoid further catastrophic loss of life in Ukraine is for some kind of negotiated settlement. That means world leaders should be trying to lower the heat instead of raising it. But Joe Biden this weekend didn't appear to have gotten that message. So in this hour, let the words of Pope John Paul burn as brightly today. Never, ever give up hope. Never doubt. Never tire. Never become discouraged. Be not afraid. A dictator bent on rebuilding an empire will never erase a people's love for liberty. Brutality will never grind down their will to be free. Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. For free people refused to live in a world of hopelessness and darkness. We will have a different future, a brighter future, rooted in democracy and principle, hope and light, of decency and dignity, of freedom and possibilities. For God's sake, this man cannot remain power. God bless you all, and may God defend our freedom. The suggestion that the US is seeking regime change will be explosive in Russia, feeding Putin's argument that this is an existential battle between Russia and the West. And that's presumably why that statement wasn't in Biden's pre-prepared script. He had ad-libbed and his staffers were left to roll back on what he had said. So a Biden administration official briefed the press after that speech. The president's point was that Putin cannot be allowed to exercise power over his neighbours or the region. He was not discussing Putin's power in Russia 
or regime change. Now that's a very, very awkward rolling back because there's, you know, there is no understanding of what he said that would have meant that. But I do kind of believe that that was an accident. We know Biden, you know, he's a kind of guy that has mistakenly referred to Ukraine as Iran before. He, he is not someone who who doesn't make these kind of mistakes, and I don't think they necessarily are that calculated when when he makes them. This also isn't the first time Biden's staff have had to clarify his statements with regard to Ukraine in a way which, you know, appeared escalatory. Earlier last week, this is how Biden responded to a question about what America would do if Russia deployed chemical or biological weapons. And to clarify on chemical weapons, could if chemical weapons were used in Ukraine, would that trigger a military response from NATO? It would re- it would trigger a response in kind. Whether or not you're asking whether NATO would cross, we'd make that decision at the time. By saying the U.S. would react in kind, Biden led many to assume the U.S. would respond to a chemical weapon attack in Ukraine by deploying its own chemical weapons. But his national security advisor insisted that wasn't what Biden meant, saying the United States has no intention of using chemical weapons, period, under any circumstance. Barnaby, do you, do you share my sort of assumption that this probably was a genuine mistake, but also how worried should we be that Biden's communications challenges, let's say, could help escalate this conflict? I mean, what better symbol of American decline than this? Out of 330 million people, the two men they choose to govern America are first a reality TV star with chronic narcissism, and then the wandering resident of a retirement home who seems to have lost his pills. You know, as the Soviet Union entered the 1980s, it was ruled by a rotating clique of semi-senile apparatchiks stuck in the past, soon forced into a humiliating withdrawal from Afghanistan. It was a state in chaos and crisis, and the echoes are striking now in today's Moscow and Washington, both of them. America's a gerontocracy ruled by a group of friends in their 70s and 80s, not least the sons and wives of past presidents. It's a one-party state, but as Kwame Nkrumah puts it, with typical American arrogance, they have two of them. And this is a lesson about what democracy is and what it isn't. If elections become lavish circuses for rival plutocrats and their hangers-on, you end up with embarrassing and incompetent leaders. That's the story of Joe Biden. And that's, I mean, I'm reminded of those stories about Ronald Reagan needing to have a group of advisors with him at all times who monitored everything he said and did because they knew he was a kind of empty shell uh, as he went increasingly senile. Uh, It's a sign not only of a society in bad health, but of a democracy that has mutated into, to use a term often on our lips these days, an oligarchy. An oligarchy isn't just when rich people sit in office and cover it in gold, as Donald Trump did. It's also when rival groups of plutocrats sponsor their rival politicians and don't care how competent they are, whether they can even string a sentence together, as long as they loyally represent the interests of wealth and power. It's a very sad sign for a country that goes around the world talking about freedom and democracy. I mean, I think everyone will agree that Biden's age makes him a poor communicator. Some people would argue, though, that potentially he's a little bit better in his old age than he was when he was a younger senator. I mean, he used to be considered quite hawkish. Now, as president, he's withdrawn America from Afghanistan, at least since, you know, the Ukraine crisis intensified when, when Russia invaded. He doesn't seem to have been trying to consciously escalate. You know, he accidentally escalates every now and again. Do you think that maybe, you know, age means that he is a bit less irresponsible than sort of like a younger liberal Democrat might have been in this situation? Well, I think the young Joe Biden is liberal only by a big stretch of the imagination. I mean, this was a guy who delivered a eulogy at the funeral of a segregationist leader who opposed busing legislation to desegregate the South and supported war all around the world. 
and yet was also prone to gaffes and moments of incompetence even as a young man. He had to withdraw from a presidential campaign decades ago because he plagiarized that great art of rhetoric, Neil Kinnock. So it's not new that Joe Biden combines a kind of all-American bravado, a kind of all-American machismo with a heavy lashing of incompetence. As I say, I think that's why he's a useful idiot for the kind of wealthy interests in American politics that line up behind rival Democrats and Republicans each election cycle. In fact, many of the biggest corporations give handy donations to both Democrats and Republicans. He manages to be both incompetent and, as commander-in-chief of the world's biggest imperial power, dangerous. But unfortunately, that's been true of every American president I can think of. By calling him a liberal, I mean, the sort of, I think the liberal interventionists around him, some of them seem a little bit more gung-ho when it comes to things like no-fly zones than, than he does, especially people in certain think tanks in Washington and obviously sort of in the corporate press. Next story. In four car crash interviews, Education Secretary Nadim Zahawi has been repeatedly schooled. He was speaking to the media to announce additional education spending and took the opportunity to boast about the Tories' generosity when it comes to pouring money into children's futures. But no one was buying it. Let's start with Sophie Ridge on Sky News. The schools have struggled, haven't they, with years of effectively underfunding. I just want to show this uh, graph that I think we should be able to bring up now. This is the funding gap between state and private schools since the Conservatives entered power. You can see the change of funding, sorry, the the change of per pupil funding. So you can see that the blue line is private schools. That's the fees that parents pay uh, per pupil and fights for private schools. The red line is state school spending per pupil. And this is the change per pupil. The dotted line, 2010, when the Conservatives entered power. If you're a parent looking at this, what do you think you would conclude about how the Conservatives prioritise state school pupils? So you'll remember in 2008-9, that was the financial crash and the crisis that um, uh, led to us having uh, to tighten our belts and, of course, um, try and get the economy back on its feet. Um, Thank goodness we managed to do that because then we got the pandemic where we've had to spend $400 making sure that people's jobs are protected and, of course, businesses are protected. But if you look at the settlement I've just got... Mm -hmm is an additional $7 billion, uh, by 2024-25. Much of it front-loaded, by the way. So $4 billion of that uh, comes early. It's effectively restoring per-pupil funding to 2010 levels. You've got a lost decade, haven't you, effectively, well, of, of growth in funding for comprehensive schools and state school pupils. But, but also, you know, as I just explained, we had to get through uh, the financial crisis. On the backs of collapsed. state school um, funding. Well, That was well put by Sophie Ridge. It's true, we did have a financial crisis in 2008. Any government would have had to deal with that in some shape or form. But it was a political decision to do so on the backs of state school pupils. Until the Tories came to power, growth in per-pupil funding was tied in the private and state sectors. In 2010, funding for state school pupils and private school pupils was around 25% higher than it had been six years earlier. Then, in 2010, when the coalition comes to power, state spending per pupil plummets. Meanwhile, spending for private school students continues to rise. This comparison is important because it puts the lie to Zahawi's claim that a drop in state school funding was because we all needed to tighten our belts. His argument is that the financial crisis meant we just couldn't afford so much as before. We couldn't expect 
the same opportunities or the same standards of living. But what he ignores is that this logic only applied to some people. Those wealthy enough to send their kids to private school evidently didn't have to tighten their belts, which is ironic given that it's the parents of private school kids who were most likely to have actually been responsible for the banking crisis. In that exchange with Sophie Ridge, you heard Zahawi boasting that more money will now be going into state schools, and he fell back on that same answer in three more interviews. Why did you deprive state school pupils of a quality education by taking money away from them to fix what happened in the banking crisis? Why did state school pupils have to suffer? Well, first of all, um, there are schools in the state system, multi-academy trusts have continued to outperform, which is the ones I want to scale and learn from them as to how they did that so well. But to your point, in the spending review, when I became Secretary of State, I got that investment. I got $7 billion yes. into education. We're talking about when you became Education Secretary. You were only recently Education Secretary. I, I These pupils have had more than 10 years of underfunding. Right. Can have I just you seen the impact on state schools? Let's just look at those numbers, shall we? Because the government spend on schools in 2022 to 2023 is $53.8 billion. Now, the IFS says now when accounting for inflation, which is the most important thing here, and higher costs, this is actually the same level as 15 years ago. So, well, you'll remember um, uh, 15 years ago, we had the financial crisis and the crash that we had to deal with when we came into office in coalition. uh, And then we uh, were hit by a global pandemic, which uh, the Chancellor made £400 billion available to protect jobs. 14 million people uh, had that net of protection through the furlough scheme. Uh, through the pandemic, but we're we're back in in real terms to that investment in education. I had the OECD head of education in my office uh, last week. He said, actually, your spend on schools is right up there in the upper quartile of OECD countries. I had Andreas Schleicher from the OECD in my office um, a couple of weeks ago. He said, on schools, you're right up there in terms of investment in education, um, and compared to, you're in a, compared to other OECD countries, um, that's a good thing. Um, now, how that money spent sometimes you said that because sometimes the Netherlands came, consistently places higher than the UK in world education rankings. They've placed over six times the amount of catch-up funding per pupil than the UK has. So I've got five billion, as well as seven billion. I've got five billion in catch-up money. Zahawi is right. The UK is in the top 25% of countries in the OECD when it comes to spending on education. But still, in my view, a pretty crappy defence. Yes, we defunded education, but it's still better than a bunch of other places. What happened to levelling up? You're not supposed to make it... Oh, there there are other places which are worse. And if we are comparing Tory policies to what they inherited, it is just indefensible. Let's put Zahawi's 7 billion pledge in context. The Institute for Fiscal Studies show all that this money will do is get school funding back to where it was in 2010. Fifteen years later, there's a long way to go to reverse the 9% cuts the Tories imposed on education. Millions of children will have started and completed their education entirely within the context of Tory austerity. What's more, wherever cuts took place, they hit the poorest the hardest. Here's another graph from the IFS. Spending on state secondary school pupils fell everywhere, but it fell most dramatically for the poorest pupils. Between 2009 and 2019, the lowest income groups saw funding drop by a massive 14%. 
And one last graph, just to show you how they're doing things differently in other parts of the UK. Scotland stands out here, while England, Wales and Northern Ireland have all seen funding fall relative to 2009 levels. In Scotland, it has recovered, which could explain you know, one reason why the SNP might be so consistently popular. So that's a general overview of core funding on education since the Tories came to power. There is also now the specific issue of helping kids catch up after missed school during the pandemic. Here, you heard again, Nadeem Zahawi boast £5 billion will be going towards the Pandemic Recovery Fund. And that might sound like a lot, but it happens to be £10 billion short of what their own catch-ups are, said would be necessary to make up for education lost so far during COVID. He resigned, that, that catch-ups are when the government refused to consider his suggested figure. Well, if it iterates a kind of arrogance to put Richie Sunak with his hundreds of millions of pounds into office to lecture the rest of us about tightening our belts, there's a more general pattern here where the Tories routinely have independent advice, which tells them that they're doing things dreadfully wrong. It's happened to Boris Johnson, it's happened to Nadim Zahawi, and then they sack or ignore the independent advisors, or the independent advisors resign and say they can't do their jobs. In, I think it was 2012, Michael Gove as education secretary cancelled Building Schools for the Future, a plan to build more than 700 schools, uh, which had leaking roofs and crowded classrooms. Years later, Gove said he regretted cancelling it and just moved on. So right from the beginning of these austerity years, we've had devastation wrought against the public realm and against the future, against children's ability to learn in decent conditions in a wealthy country. The Tories slash and burn, see the damage it wreaks, years later say they're sorry, and then just move on. Sorry means I won't do it again. So why do they keep doing it? It shows a total ignorance, I think, about the long-term damage they're doing to this country. Children deprived of funding young, higher education then being strangled with massive pay cuts driving talent away from the sector, and then they swoop in with academization, handing schools over from the public to unelected and unaccountable bosses. So at every stage, from primary schools with their funding depleted, to secondary schools handed over to unaccountable academies, to universities in deep crisis as pay and pensions are are cut uh, for their lecturers. At every stage of education, we have a desperate crisis and we're going to slip down all kinds of league tables. And it's because of totally avoidable decisions taken by politicians. Of course, these are not the schools where politicians send their own children. Those schools are equipped with amazing technology, with space to work and to play, State schools had their playing fields sold off in the 1980s. That didn't happen in private schools. The schools where politicians send their children are equipped with all the best state-of-the-art facilities. I know because I went to one, and it's pretty shocking and striking, I guess it shouldn't shock us, to see the same people who send their own children to places where every opportunity is given to them, utterly casual about fiddling the statistics and ignoring independent advice so that most children in this country see their opportunities slide, wither, and decline. We can look at um, another sort of interesting part from that round of interviews. Nadim Zahawi spoke to Times Radio about how he thought schools should teach the British Empire. Kemi Badenoch was on Times Radio a, a short while ago talking about uh, that people should be taught about the benefits of empire, not simply the criticisms of the British Empire, but the benefits of empire. Do you agree with her? Yes, I do. Let me give you an example. You know that my parents fled Iraq uh, because of Saddam Hussein. Uh, If you ask Iraqis, before the Ba'athist regime came into office, Saddam's 
um, you know, cronies and criminals. Uh, Iraq was left a legacy of a, uh, a British uh, civil service system that actually served the country incredibly well for many, many decades. Um, and that's the sort of thing that actually children should be learning about. And, and of course, all aspects of empire. Uh, and I think that's important. Uh, do you, as Education Secretary Nadeem Zahari, do you worry about wokeness in schools? Do you ever spend any of your time thinking about the issue of wokeness in the education system? I think I've got a great teachers doing a, an incredible job. Uh, there's 461,000 teachers, um, a million people working in education. Um, I think the important thing is to remember to teach children how to think but not what to think. Yeah. Uh, if we all focus on that, then we will do a great job for, for, for those young minds. So you know, I, I'm fond of telling people my story about you know, being an 11-year-old who couldn't speak a word of English, uh, who had to string words together in his head to make a sentence and sort of you know, hid at the back of the class, uh, but had parents who had the wherewithal to help me um, uh, focus on education. I want the system to work for every child, even those who, whose parents don't have the wherewithal or have no parents at all. And so let's teach children how to think, how to have those... You know, inquiring, inquisitive minds, rather than sort of bringing in you know, our own um, uh, politics or otherwise into the classroom. And do you think that happens a little bit? Do you think that sometimes the, the politics does sneak into the classroom via the teachers? Well, look, um, I think on the whole, and uh, my experience of 12 years of being a member of parliament, you know, running in several elections, I never turned down a school hustings because I think it's important for students to hear from the blue team and the red team and the yellow team and the green team. Um, as long as, as teachers are giving students the ability to um, stress test arguments, to be able to see both sides of an argument, that is a great thing. Obviously, smart politics from the Tories, I think, having you know, an education secretary of Iraqi heritage say, oh, actually, we need to talk about the good sides of empire as well. Barnaby, what were your thoughts on those comments from the Dean Zahawi? So many. I mean, for one thing, it's striking how they construct a picture of left-wing dominance in every sphere of British life so that they can paint themselves while they rule every roost as the underdogs. Most kids in Britain brought up knowing about William Wilberforce, knowing about the great white noble Brits who helped abolish slavery. I remember wondering as a kid what they were even abolishing because I was never taught about British role in the slave trade. Three million people enslaved by the British. 17 billion pounds in today's money paid out in compensation, not to the slaves who didn't get a penny, but to slave owners, some of the wealthiest people in Britain, handed money when their slaves, three million of them, many of whom died in crowded conditions on those voyages over, uh, were finally liberated. Ireland lost a quarter of its population to a colonially produced starvation, and they called it a famine. In the Bengal famine in 1943, four million people died, again, abetted by deliberate colonial indifference, guarding with guns the food exported while all around those containers, people starved and died. So ask yourself this, what does it tell us about the wealthy today and the powerful today that they don't want us talking about that? Why does talk of the rapacious exploitation of human beings make them queasy now? I think that's the question we don't ask enough, because the obvious conclusion is the true one, that our society is still premised on sucking blood from billions to adorn the gowns of a few. And so questions of empire are not distant or abstract or academic, and they're not only questions about the past either. When you see the contempt with which leaders dismiss the genocide of the colonised, the same leaders who scoff as people shiver in the cold right now or starve themselves to feed their kids know that this is what they think of you, expendable, immaterial, a resource for their wealth. That is why this matters. That is why 
fighting to ensure that we can have serious conversations about empire in Britain matters because it tells us something about the nature of the British ruling class. It tells us something about the nature of British capitalism. When royals go to the Caribbean and patronize and uh, wave to the locals, they're arriving in places that funded for centuries their wealth by extraction and slavery. This is the nature of British ruling class, and this is why they don't want us talking about these things. But it's not just a question of the past, it's a question of how they regard most of us here now in the present. I think it also shows just sort of how little they understand what goes on in schools. Like I've been a teaching assistant in a school in in South London for a while. And the reason like we did lots of black history was because the majority of the students there were it was it was a girls' school. So the majority of the students there were black girls. And they were the topics that they were most interested in, right? So, so it, it's not this sort of attempt, we've got to indoctrinate everyone into this school to believe that empire is an important topic. No, it's actually more often than not student-led. There's also a complete like category area from the conservatives because they think the reason that young people aren't voting for the conservatives is because they're indoctrinated in school. The reason young people aren't voting conservative is because in, so this is the borough I'm from, Wolfham Forest, house prices in 1997 were 3.5 times average incomes in that borough. By this year, they are 15.7 times average incomes in that borough. The the reason young people aren't voting conservatives isn't because they've learned too much about imperialism in school. It's because they have no chance in hell of ever owning a house. And so they are going to be condemned to paying half of their income to a landlord for the rest of their lives. You know, maybe that's the problem you need to sort out if you want young people to vote conservative. Or maybe the issue here actually has nothing to do with young people whatsoever. And what this is about is virtue signaling to the older voters who you think might have a financial interest in voting for the conservatives. I think that's probably what's going on here. This has nothing to do with children, one way or the other. You know, They are being used as part of a PR strategy to distract other people, people who actually have very little to do with any of these lessons or kids learning about anything. It's all, I think, a complete facade. Next story. Charlie Elphick was the Tory MP for Dover from 2010 to 2019. Under David Cameron, Elphick had served in the Whip's office. In 2017, he was suspended from the Tories after abuse allegations were made against him by two parliamentary staffers. And in 2020, he was convicted of three counts of sexual assault. With regards to those convictions, one of the victims was a nanny working in his family home, another a member of his staff in the Commons. Elphick's story is, in many ways, a familiar one of how powerful men can exploit their positions to abuse women. But it's also one about the relative impunity of Britain's most privileged. Despite an ongoing police investigation, Elphick was reinstated to the Tory party in 2018 on the eve of a confidence vote in Prime Minister Theresa May. And this weekend, we discovered that for the past four years, Elphick had been using Britain's stringent libel laws to silence one of his alleged victims. The story appeared in the Sunday Times, who had been the target of Elphick's long-running legal campaign. He was suing them because of a story they published in 2018, describing allegations from one of Elphick's accusers. At the time, they reported this The Sunday Times has a signed statement from the alleged victim in which she claims that she was raped by the MP. I was explicitly clear I did not want to have sex with him and he was aware of this, she says. I was visibly very upset at the time. 
The woman in question, who they're calling Jane, went to the Sunday Times after feeling let down by the police, who she says didn't appear to believe her and didn't even inform Charlie Elphick that her allegations had been made. Elphick's libel case against the Sunday Times scared other outlets from reporting on Jane's allegations, and they also meant Jane had to relive her ordeal. Charlie Elphick withdrew the libel claim last Wednesday, which is why the Sunday Times are now able to report on the story. We'll get into the details of the case and its implications in one moment. First, let's answer a basic question. Why was a sex offender ex-MP able to silence an alleged victim two years after his conviction? Well, it's important to be clear, Jane was not one of the two women who Elphick was convicted of assaulting. It was two other women whose testimony led to his convictions. But that doesn't mean Jane's claim didn't have weight. We know that because of the appalling way rape is handled by our police and our courts, only 1.6% of rape allegations lead to a charge. The figure will be even lower for convictions. So it seems the ability of Elphick to gag his alleged victim has less to do with the strength of her claims, which the Sunday Times deemed to be credible, and more to do with Britain's defunct libel laws. Unlike in other countries, the law here places the burden of proof on publishers, not claimants. And cases are often pursued by expensive lawyers on a no-win, no-fee basis. The Sunday Times report, After the intervention of Carter Ruck, who represented Elphick, and the decision to sue for libel, the burden was on the Sunday Times to defend its decision to publish, rather than on Elphick to prove why we should not have done so. Carter Ruck and Elphick had signed a conditional fee arrangement, or a no-win, no-fee arrangement, basically, meaning that it stood to gain financially by pursuing the newspaper for as long as possible. The newspaper has spent countless hours and more than £500,000 defending itself over the April 2018 articles. It mounted two defences in court, saying that not only were the reports in the public interest, but that they were true. So the Sunday Times, for reporting allegations they deemed to be credible, were now tasked with proving they were actually true. Now that's an incredibly high burden of proof, which is why so many libel claimants find these things worth it to, to pursue. They say, you've written something I don't like. Can you 100% prove this? No, then I'm going to sue you, right? It's this incredibly high burden of proof, which, which means that it is so expensive to defend against libel claims. The Sunday Times spent £500,000 fighting this case, and they also risk being on the line for Carter Ruck's legal fees. We can expect these to be enormous, hence their willingness to fight the case on a no-win, no-fee basis. If they win, they can you know, they really rake it in. Significantly, these potentially extortionate costs meant other outlets avoided covering the allegations against Elphick, and that included the BBC. You'd have thought they should have deep pockets. Indeed, the BBC was so scared that when the Sunday Times splashed the allegations on their front page, the Andrew Marr show refused to show it. Really striking. They normally show every front page on the Andrew Marr show. They didn't show the Sunday Times front page that day because they were so scared that the man in question would sue them. So the gagging was evidently successful, which raises the question why Charlie Elphick has now dropped the claims. On that front, the Sunday Times report, it was only this month after Elphick and his team were presented with the woman's first person account that they abandoned their libel case. Elphick claimed he had done so to protect the woman from the trauma of testifying. How noble of him. Now, one might question whether protecting this woman from trauma was genuinely what led Charlie Elphick to drop the claim, especially as he had already made her fight the claim for almost four years. On that front, Jane told 
the Sunday Times this. I feel that because of the claimant's actions in pursuing the Sunday Times after publication, he has been able to punish and torture me, effectively forcing me to prove that I'm a victim of rape and sexual assault without any repercussions. I do not wish to keep reliving this and hope that my involvement with this man will soon be over. Barnaby, we've talked on this show before about how Britain's libel laws disincentivize hard-hitting journalists, journalism into powerful people because the fear of, of being sued is so high, the burden of proof is so high. What this, I think, also demonstrates is that our libel laws could disincentivize people from even talking to journalists because it, it could turn out that a story written about you, you then have to testify that it is 100% true, basically you know, going through a second trial, going through a, a second investigation even after you've spoken to the police. The whole thing is really, really grotesque, isn't it? Yes, power is everywhere the enemy of dignity and freedom. If a boss has the power to dismiss you knowing that you will not be able to make ends meet, you're in his control and he can abuse and harass you. And if a man knows that he can mistreat a woman and there will be no consequences, that's how abuse spreads. Unless we pay attention, laws are made to suit the powerful people who pay for them. And Britain has the best laws money can buy. I'm really glad you're covering this because we are in a kind of topsy-turvy reality. Government ministers talk of championing free speech. Then they ban organizations from boycotting apartheid in Israel. And they ensure that journalists are chilled from speaking freely, but only if their target's rich. Just think about that. Tabloids can bully the poor and the marginalized as much as they like. But if you want to say anything about someone rich, you better think twice. So we effectively have two legal frameworks, one for the wealthy whose friends write the laws and another for their victims. If you're on benefits or a refugee or a public sector worker, you can be humiliated by Murdoch's journalists every day of the week. They can intrusively harass and abuse you. Meanwhile, rich men know they can abuse women, exploit their workers and silence critics. And they call this freedom. It's remarkable as well. Even the BBC was scared to show a front page that someone else had ran with. And this is the BBC, you know, they've got deep pockets. How is anyone else supposed to be able to hold the powerful to account? We spoke on a previous show how Laura Murray's completely, to my mind, reasonable tweet about Rachel Riley, which even the judge admitted was a, or accepted, I should say, was a reasonable interpretation of what she had said. Even that meant that she, you know, is, is potentially on the line for a million pound in, in legal fees. There's no limit to this. Libel laws don't work in the same way that other criminal laws do because you can't get legal aid. There doesn't seem to be any limit whatsoever in terms of what the cost will be that you have to pay these incredibly expensive lawyers who are basically, I mean, to my mind, playing a pretty parasitic role here. The other grotesque angle to this story concerns how implicated the Conservatives more generally are. As I've already explained, Charlie Elphick had the whip restored in 2018. That was before Theresa May's confidence vote. They didn't give an explanation, by the way. It was withdrawn again in 2019, 2019 when he was charged. But guess who replaced him as the Tory candidate for Dover? His wife. Natalie Elphick has flip-flopped on support for Charlie. She supported him throughout the trial, but then tweeted the marriage was over after his conviction. She then went on to announce she would, in fact, support his appeal. In 2021, a year after Charlie's conviction, Natalie Elphick would tell the son... Charlie is charming, wealthy, charismatic and successful, attractive and attracted to women. All things that in today's climate made him an easy target for dirty politics and false allegations. She also told The Sun, It was obvious to me from reading the evidence during lockdown that the criminal allegations against him were complete nonsense, and I still believe they are. 
Elphick was paid £25,000, by the way, by The Sun, for two other tell-all articles in 2020. She is currently, she's not just a backbench MP, she's a vice chair of the Conservative Party. The Sunday Times also report that four other Tory MPs are implicated in the affair. Sir Roger Gale, Theresa Villiers, Adam Holloway and Bob Stewart all signed a letter organised by Natalie Elphick pressing Mrs Justice Whipple not to disclose their character statements for Charlie Elphick. They were all forced to apologise or were briefly suspended by the Commons Standard Committee, so a non-partisan body, for trying to improperly influence a judge. Barnaby, I mean, it seems pretty obvious to me that none of these people should be in politics. You know, on one level, you say, oh, a wife defending her husband, difficult situation to be in, whatever. But if you are an MP, you shouldn't be saying those things about someone who has been convicted of sexual assault. Well, that depends what you think politics is. I mean, if it's a place where the cleverest people debate the best ideas to help others, then clearly the current crop have walked into the wrong job. But if it's a kind of after-dinner club, uh, some weekend fun after a career in banking, or a training ground for profitable corporate directorships later on, then this lot on both sides are perfectly placed. I mean, just think about what we've discussed this evening. We've talked about schools being immiserated and starved of funding so that the next generation of our uh, of Brits are going to suffer as a result. We've talked about libel laws, which ensure that you can protect yourself from criticism as long as you've got lots of money to pay to silence your critics. We've talked about the wife of a politician taking over his seat and then siding with him against uh, people making very serious allegations. It all suggests a kind of stitch up in which politics is working just fine for people who want to use it as a tool for the reproduction of class power. That's what it is. It means it allows people who already have a lot of class power to retire for a few evenings in the House of Commons bar after a successful career in law or banking. And it allows people who aspire to be part of that ruling class to prove their loyalty and then walk into lots of nice corporate directorships afterwards. I think it's working just fine for them. It's just not working very well for most people. Let's end this segment with a recent video of Natalie Elphick doing her job as a constituency MP. Here she is taking part in a demonstration against job losses at P&O Ferries. Watch how it backfires. That is the standard of the current crop of Tory MPs, vice chair of the Conservative Party. She's chanting, shame on you, shame on you, thinking that she's joining in a chant against the bosses of P&O Ferries. Then she realises that they're saying shame on you about her because she voted against uh, a Labour proposal to ban fire and rehire. So she's, she's saying, shame on you, shame on And then she realises, oh, crap. They're saying shame on me about me. I have absolutely no sympathy for her in any way whatsoever. I cannot find a, a single grain of sympathy um, for that woman. All solidarity to the protesters there and to, 
you know, I don't normally say it, but to the Sunday Times for fighting this libel battle and to the, the woman who was, who was involved in giving that testimony to the Sunday Times. Next story. Laura Koonsberg has been announced as Andrew Marr's replacement as host of the BBC's flagship Sunday morning politics show. On the announcement, she said, I'm extremely happy to say that I'll be in the BBC politics chair on Sunday mornings from September. It's a genuine honour and real thrill to be working with an amazing team on the show. Can't wait to get started. Journalists and politicians alike have been congratulating Koonsberg, but there haven't been too many words of encouragement from the left. That's largely because Koonsberg was viewed as being consistently biased against Jeremy Corbyn for the five years he was leader of the Labour Party. Some examples, in 2016, she edited an interview to make it seem as if Corbyn would be opposed to shooting terrorists taking part in a Paris-style attack. After a complaint, the BBC Trust would judge the report was inaccurate. In the 2019 general election, she tweeted, So, Matt Hancock was dispatched to Leeds General to try sort out this mess. Hearing Labour activists scramble to go and protest and it turned nasty when they arrived. One of them punched Hancock's advisor. Video footage would show the event didn't happen, completely made up. You see that sort of that classic Laura line, hearing Labour activists, hearing, I'm told this, someone WhatsApp me this and I'm going to now just project it to, to the public. Um, there were other examples of bias when she consistently treated any row involving Corbyn's Labour more seriously than anything involving the Tories. Tweeting a story about the former Tory chair calling her party Islamophobic, Koonsberg felt it worth being clear, this is on different political scale. But Tories also have a problem here. She is presumably oblivious to how the country's most influential political journalists might impact what stories do and don't become politically significant. You'll note that what I think is super important and super characteristic of the way she has reported is she says this is on a diff different political scale. You know, she's, she's not talking about the facts of the matter. Maybe Islamophobia is just out, as outrageous in the Tory party as anti-Semitism is in the Labour Party, but this is on a different political scale. She's not intervening in politics, she's just commenting on it. And if, the, if everyone is rallying against Corbyn, she's happy, happy to join in. The Corbyn bashing would, of course, continue even after he stood down as leader. When Starmer was elected, she tweeted, It's not healthy in our political system to have a government without effective opposition. It makes the compass wonky. Starmer has a massive task to get the party to start working in that way again, actually to make it function in a way that's anything like normal. But a return to politics as usual has not made Koonsberg more willing to criticise the government or play the traditional journalist role of holding them to account. Just last week, this was her preview of Rishi Sunak's disastrous spring statement. So she tweeted, Sunak munched on pizza at final run-through of his spring statement speech tonight, but just one slice and maybe not much appetite for big moves tomorrow. Real hard-hitting stuff there from the BBC political editor. We should, of course, be clear, though, before people say, why are you always targeting Laura Koonsberg? There are other journalists out there. There are other journalists out there. And obsequiousness isn't unique to Laura Koonsberg. This is the man who she will replace. I think this does one thing. Um, it draws a line under what had been before this war, uh, a period of uh, when a faint air of pointlessness almost was hanging over Downing Street. There was all these slightly tawdry arguments and scandals. That is now history. 
uh, Mr. Blair is well aware that all his critics out there in the party and beyond aren't going to thank him because they're only human for being right when they've been wrong. And he knows that there might be trouble ahead, as I've said. But I think this is a very, very important moment for him. It gives him a new freedom and a new self-confidence. Uh, he confronted uh, many critics. I don't think anybody after this is going to be able to say of Tony Blair that he's somebody who is driven by the drift of public opinion or focus groups or opinion polls. He took all of those on. He said that they would be able to take Baghdad without a bloodbath and that in the end, the Iraqis would be celebrating. And on both of those points, he has been proved conclusively right. And it would be entirely ungracious, uh, even for his critics, not to acknowledge that tonight he stands as a larger man and a stronger prime minister as a result. Andrew, many thanks. I've watched that clip now so many times. I watch it all the time. And every time it still completely blows my mind, especially just the way it ends. No one could possibly, no one could possibly argue he does not stand up bigger prime minister, a more powerful prime minister after this. And then, you know, obviously he thought that was over. Barnaby, are you looking forward to hearing Laura Koonsberg hold the powerful's feet to the fire on a Sunday morning? I'm so glad you played that clip of uh, Andrew Marr, because uh, I remember the moment that uh, Andrew Marr interviewed Noam Chomsky, and Marr was in a kind of confusion about Chomsky's claim that the media in a supposedly free society has a propagandistic role. And Marr said to Chomsky, are you really saying that I'm self-censoring, that I don't believe the things I say? And Chomsky said to him, no, I think you believe everything you say. It's just if you believed anything else, you wouldn't be sat here now. Uh, well, we see a brilliant example. You know, Marr doesn't have to be ordered by any state censor to say that Tony Blair's invasion of Iraq is a massive success. He goes to all the right cocktail parties, hangs out with all the right people, and so forms that opinion organically. Journalists send their children to the same schools as politicians and bankers. They attend the same dinner parties and they holiday in the same places. So the British media is just a kind of loop for the ruling class to speak to itself. And as therapy, that might be a little bit inadequate. The problem is that they expect other people to listen into their loop, their little private conversation. And the danger is that sometimes other people do listen in. And this class all defend each other. You know, when working class kids are deprived of decent housing and decent schools and decent healthcare because of political decisions, that's never called organized harassment. But if those kids or their parents protest, they quickly become the bullies. And when people feel frustrated and exhausted that their reality is never reported by journalists who treat politicians as friends with funny stories, if people protest about that too much, they become the bullies. I've got my own personal funny story here, which is I remember when I was an undergraduate, John Mann, a Labour MP, that as he then was, came to address a meeting of students at my university. And John Mann was latterly appointed czar for anti-Semitism. Wonderful title. There have been many czars for anti-Semitism in, uh, in modern history. And he explained to the group of students that he was very concerned by the increasing harassment in British society. And his example of that harassment was that people attacked Laura Koonsberg. And he persisted to tell us many, many times that Laura Koonsberg's name is Koonsberg and that she was being targeted in an act of anti-Semitic harassment. Obviously, Laura Koonsberg is descended from, I think, sort of semi-aristocratic Germans. There's nothing Jewish about it. But John Mann had seen the B-E-R-G at the end of her, her name and rushed to assume that she was Jewish. It's a kind of slightly dismal rush to defend the powerful from the powerless without much regard for all the ways in which poorer people, more vulnerable people, are constantly harassed, attacked and bullied. All super important points. I was thinking today, sort of, is it just the job? Because obviously you watch that Andrew Mark clip and you think this is clearly, you know, this role is just institutionally sort of designed for people who are willing to brown nose the government. It looks like things don't change. 
But I do feel like Laura Koonsberg potentially has been subject to a bit more scrutiny than previous political editors. And, you know, some people say, you know, oh, is this sexism or whatever? There are many female journalists who aren't subject to a similar amount of anger that she is. I mean, I'm sure in some cases it is. I think potentially the explanation is more banal, though. I think it's that Twitter has shown people how the sausage is made, right? So Andrew Marr would go out and say all of this complete nonsense. But because no one really knew how he came to those opinions, there would be a sort of certain amount of mystery and gravitas about it. People would be like, oh, Andrew Marr seems to be, see, Andrew Marr seems to be an informed person. And Laura Koonsberg's problem is that she constantly tweets, oh, I'm hearing this, I'm hearing that, I'm hearing this. And it's, it's, it's totally obvious to everyone that all she's doing is repeating WhatsApp messages she's hearing from various insiders in Westminster. That's why I think it was that as much as any ideological opposition to Jeremy Corbyn that meant she reported on him so badly because Jeremy Corbyn was not liked among Westminster insiders. She gets all her news and all her perspectives from WhatsApp messages from Westminster insiders. And that's how she sort of comes up with these grand narratives. And I feel like potentially if Andrew Marr had also had Twitter, and so he'd constantly have been, you know, saying, oh, I'm hearing the Iraq war's going very well. Oh, I'm hearing from this Westminster source that uh, it was very embarrassing for Saddam Hussein when he stood up and said you know, or was it the general or whoever? I think if, if we'd known how the sausage was made during the Iraq war, Andrew Marr would have been as ridiculed as Laura Koonsberg is. So potentially, you know, maybe maybe we should have some gratitude to her for, for showing how the sausage is made and how, how banal all of this is and how the job as BBC political editor has very, very little whatsoever to do with journalism. It's about translating the stories you're told on WhatsApp by powerful people to a mass audience which potentially she does quite well. You know, people say, oh, Laura Koonsberg, she's very, very good at her job because she can string a story together, but all she's doing is making what powerful people are telling her digestible for a general audience, which, I mean, I think I really think we need to completely reconceive what a political editor should be and should do. It shouldn't just be someone who translates what powerful people tell them. And that seems to me what the BBC political editor role is, whoever takes it. Barnaby, lots of love for you in the comments there. People are very excited. You're going to be covering for Ash until she's back from book leave. I suppose final comments. Are you team Will or team Chris Rock? I, you know, I think what the world needs badly is two white men giving their opinions about this saga. I am both <laughs> confident that women can defend themselves without needing men to go and smack other people for them and also think that as the scale of violence in the world uh, that we're currently enveloped in, this is very, very small in that scale of violence and people getting outraged about it should perhaps better direct their outrage elsewhere. Yeah, I think I tend towards Team Will. I think it was a nasty joke about someone who has a health problem, essentially, and the slap wasn't that bad. I mean, if he'd knocked him out, yeah, that would have been probably you know more of a problem. But you slap a guy for telling a terrible joke. I don't endorse it, obviously. You're not supposed to do that. But also I have a sneaky suspicion it is staged because the Oscars terrible ratings. And I just think you could not have prepared a better drama, like a better sequence of events to sort of cause controversy to, to spark discourse. And I feel like something that perfect doesn't always happen organically. Obviously, this is just a suspicion. Maybe we'll come back to does it on this, a future show. Probably we won't, Barnaby. Does this mean I have to worry that your ratings for your start hitting me and other people at the studio? And all this? Is this your thinking about how to get ratings up? It's terrifying, Michael. Well, I want it to be realistic when it happens, so I'm not going to tell you beforehand in advance. Welcome to the team. Thank you for joining us this evening, Barnaby. Thank you so much for watching. We'll be back on Wednesday at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night.
This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.